episode 51 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast in the history of human civilization that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Despite your many calls and emails, I am back. My name is Tom Breen. <laughs> Joining me, as always, are my colleagues, Maxine Filivong. I'm also back. Yes. <laughs> Welcome back, guys. Julie Bartuka. Still here. Ken Best. Never left. That's right. That's right. Some people are more committed to the podcast than Maxine and I, <laughs> traipsing around. But Tom came back bearing gifts he for all did. of us. He did. We got the coolest him. things from Japan. It's true. I went to. I actually went to Meriden. Uh, <laughs> and just told people I went to Japan because it seemed more glamorous. No, I have. I Don't have, hate on Meriden. I have it on good authority. People either heard or saw you in Japan or know that you were there from outside of this building. Social media. Social media. Post lots of pics. Um, yeah, so I'm back from Japan, but uh, more importantly, I'm back here at UConn 360, and we have, we have a great program for you this As week, always. our 51st episode. It's a birthday week for Julie and I. Yeah. Uh, happy Ju- birthday, Tom. Happy birthday, Julie. We're both turning 25. It's incredible. <laughs> um, so weird, right? Yeah, I know, right? So why don't we uh, jump right into the, the news? There's a lot of exciting news this week. Julie, why don't you lead off and... Sure. Let us know what's happening. UConn has been named the 11th greenest institution in the world among 780 peers. The 2019 UI Green Metric World University Rankings recognize universities that excel in six sustainability indicators, campus setting and infrastructure, energy and climate change, waste, water, transportation, and education slash research. Schools from 85 countries participated in the survey, and UConn is one of only two universities from the United States that made the top 20, along with UC Davis. And this is the latest environmental accolade for us, which um, we are currently number five on the Sierra Club's cool schools list as well. Very nice. Ken, what's, what's, uh, what do you have for us? Well, as faithful listeners will recall, we had the Culinary Olympics story last week. Mm-hmm. Yesterday was the actual Coronary Olympics, and it once again showcased the skills and creativity of our dining services chef, uh, where they had to work against the clock to make tapas dishes using a basket of mystery ingredients, which included this year frog legs, porcini mushroom powder, pistachios, cornbread, chia raspberry jam, French meat pie, and oat milk. It was a very difficult challenge as they said. However, the Gelfenbein Commons and Halal team of Amy Granis, Donna Johnson, and Charlie Strong took the first place. Congrats. Position. They had prepared pistachio encrusted hopping pops with tropical salsa. That's the frog legs. We'll the play on pops. frog legs, yeah. Canadian burger on crostini with balsamic cranberry reduction and jalapeno cornbread bellini for dessert. Wow. Sounds good. Sounds like fun. Congratulations to the team from Gelfenbein. The full listing of the winners in the Boiling Point and all the other recipe categories can be found along with Sean Flint's pictures at today.yukon.edu. I think everyone who listens to UConn 360 uh, understands that UConn plays a big role in the life of the state of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. But now there's a way to quantify that. You can uh, head over to impact.uconn.edu and see the results of a new study that shows UConn's value to the Connecticut economy is roughly $5.3 billion a year. That's billion with a B. No small change. No small change. And that's direct and indirect uh, economic contributions. The report breaks it down into all kinds of different categories like grant funding, uh, state and local taxes, and also uh, the impact.uconn.edu site has a really neat feature where you can plug in your town and you can see how many students 
current students are from your town, how many uh, staff and faculty live in your town, how many alums are from your town, average student financial aid, and uh, UConn health patient visits. Very cool. My colleagues in the marketing team have been hard at work getting that info out. They did a great job putting that website together. Mm -hmm. So head on over to impact.uconn.edu and find out exactly how much UConn is bringing to your life, unless you live outside the state of Connecticut, in which case... Nothing. Uh, nothing. <laughs> Zero. Just joy. Big goose egg. Only joy. It's probably not true, actually. Well, anyway, let's uh, let's get on to uh, the exciting stories that we have this week. Let's do it. Maxine, you've got something for us. I do have something for us. The Wellness Coalition, directed by Student Health and Wellness, and the Operations and Informational Management Department are hosting UConn's second campus-wide Innovate Wellness Challenge. What is the Innovate Wellness Challenge, you may ask? Taryn Jonathan of UConn's Emerging Technology Initiative stopped by our studios to tell us more about it. Working with both Susanna Narado, who is the Executive Director of Student Health and Wellness, and John throughout my undergrad, throughout both working experiences, I kept finding students with really amazing ideas around different types of health innovations or using technology to enhance health. And so the idea of the Innovate Wellness Challenge came out of um, providing students a platform to be able to voice those ideas and then potentially have the opportunity to work with staff and faculty to implement those ideas. My name is Jonathan Moore. I am the director of MIS in the School of Business, Management Information Systems. Two years ago, I developed the OPIM Innovate Emerging Tech Initiative, which is all around bringing emerging tech analytics to all students and to try and upskill them to make them more competitive in the the workplace. My name is Tara Watrous. I am a recent UConn graduate, and I have a dual employment with the business school as well as student health and wellness. So with John, I work helping him with OPIM Innovate, which is an emerging technology initiative out of the business school. And then I'm also working with student health and wellness to launch an Innovate Wellness Initiative that really helps students to create ideas and then also look to develop those ideas around health innovations. We kind of saw some need to figure out how technology can improve students' lives and specifically around the scope of wellness. We first kind of merged these two ideas about a year ago with the first challenge. I run a number of case competitions, challenges, data challenges, and uh, they had asked for my experience to help guide them with this first challenge that they were putting together. Tara said students can sign up in teams of three to work on this year's theme, student stress. Nationally, stress is one of the highest indicators of academic impediment. And so when we were looking at the data, we felt like, one, the problem that we can attack, it's also a problem that we see across the nation. So if we can help students at UConn, then potentially that could have the impact to help universities across the country. And so students have to work through the five phases of design thinking. So for the first elimination round, which is going to be poster presentation, students have to work through the empathize phase, the define phase, and then the ideate. So students will come up with three top ideas that they think could help students reduce stress. And then from there, the top teams will be able to go on to semifinal presentations and final presentations where they're then from the top three ideas, selecting one idea, and they're working with staff, faculty, um, and mentors to hone in on that idea and figure out how to build a prototype and then potentially how to test that prototype. Tara and Jonathan encourage students from all majors to join the challenge. So we are really encouraging interdisciplinary teams to, to form through this challenge. So all students are open, and it's encouraged that you work with students that are kind of outside your major, so you get to meet new students and you bring different skill sets to the team. Last year's challenge charged students to innovate wellness more broadly across campus. 
we charge students to create a, a continuum of connectedness and engagement throughout campus. And so the top three teams were the Wellness Points team. So they wanted to create some type of application where students would be incentivized to participate and engage in healthy behaviors. The second team was pet therapy. So they wanted to expand pet therapy and have a map where you could track where all the events were on campus. And then the third team was called the Sunshine Initiative, and they wanted to create more spaces both inside and outside where students could just enjoy some vitamin D. You'll notice that the top two ideas involved some form of technology. Both of them were kind of app ideas. So the top one, the, the wellness points idea, a number of different organizations and programs had already been kind of working on that. So as a group, we have been really trying to help that, that student team, that one, stay involved and kind of providing their feedback as we're developing and kind of building some prototypes in that space. So that is moving along. Uh, the second idea, the pet therapy app, I've had students working directly on it. So this was an, another kind of neat way that we could incubate those ideas and turn them into reality for the students that participated. The idea for the challenge came out of Innovate UConn in the OPIM department. Uh, we worked on that lab for uh, about two years, and a number of services came out of that where we were able to offer workshops. We were able to do learning activities so students that were afraid of technology or, or wanted to learn more, say, about 3D printing or VR could come in and do these different what we call tech kits to really help upskill them. And this was outside of their curriculum, um, outside of any particular class. It really was giving them the ability to kind of better their resume, uh, better their ability to dive into these very sought-after skills. We also kind of kept it open as a sandbox for students working on projects, case competitions, or challenges. So that's another uh, synergy that we have. And so you'd have students come in, work on projects. Maybe they're entrepreneurs that could come into our space and do that. And so the success there in a very short period of time was connecting with internal partners like Student Health and Wellness and, and a, a handful of others. But then we started to get external interest as well. So this past semester, um, we did the Hanover Image Analytics Challenge. So this was a, a really big competition. We had 72 students sign up and we kept it as diverse as possible. Any major could come in and try and look at data and try and solve these different problems that Hanover had. So not only were we developing them throughout the challenge, we were able to really focus on getting them to the point of experiential learning. The, the goal was, was that a number of those students were even offered internships at the end. Well, all that packaged together and some of the successes, we said, can we take this idea and make it bigger? And we're just at kind of the cusp of that. Jonathan says they have ideas to expand their lab outside of their department and even outside of UConn. The big thing is to take our lab and to create these other affiliated labs. So it's really changing the idea of your traditional centers at the academic level. Any affiliated lab would keep their affiliation, but they would kind of come under this idea of student-driven inquiry. So you take students where they're at, figure out what they're interested in, and then you can bring in maybe research projects, companies that want challenges, internal um, like the, the wellness challenge, and the idea is to kind of bring that all together under one umbrella. So it's really this ongoing thing that we've been trying to get started and uh, bringing different partners on. Teams can register for the challenge starting February 3rd.
So registration opens at the beginning of February and it's open for about 10 days. And then we're going to have info sessions and a kickoff event in the middle of February. The poster presentations are going to be at the beginning of March and then semifinal presentations the end of March. And then at the end, um, it's going to be a culmination at the wellness conference that Student Health and Wellness hosts annually. And so those are going to be the top three teams presenting the final three presentations. They say the top three teams will win a prize. So the top team is going to win $2,250, and then it scales down from there. So $750 each for the top team, and then scales down. So there will be a link um, at innovatelabs.uconn.edu. That is our OPIM Innovate Lab page, and then there will be a link that you can click on to access the challenge. That's awesome. $2,000. That's fantastic. Submit your ideas, kids. You need new ideas all the time. Mm-hmm. Ken, what new ideas do you have for us? Well, it's actually not an idea that I had, but the uh, Brain Trust of Hockey in the state of Connecticut has come up with a really interesting new event that's going to start for the very first time the weekend of January 24th through 26th. Uh, UConn and the state's three other Division I men's ice hockey teams will start the first Connecticut Ice Festival on January 24th. Uh, This will take place at Webster Bank Arena at Bridgeport, and it will be an annual event celebrating youth, amateur, and collegiate hockey in the state. Uh, UConn will compete in two-round, four-game tournaments, along with teams from Sacred Heart University, Quinnipiac University, and Yale University. And all games will be broadcast on SNY, which, of course, covers UConn football and men's and women's basketball games. There's going to be youth events, clinics for players, three-division tournaments for boys and girls, 12 and under, and a girls' and boys' showcase game and a prep school showcase game in conjunction with USA Hockey, which means it's really a nationally affiliated program. Now, there's a lot of folks who may be familiar with the Beanpot College Hockey Tournament that's been in Boston for uh, almost 70 years. But this is going to be a little bit different because it's not just the tournament. It's it's got everything else. UConn head coach Mike Cavanaugh was a longtime assistant at Boston College and participated in that tournament. And he would like to see the Connecticut Ice Festival develop a similar atmosphere for hockey fans right here in the state of Connecticut. And uh, we talked about it. How did this idea come about for a hockey festival in Connecticut? Well, I think it came about long before I got here because I know at my initial press conference I was asked, would I have interest in it? It was clearly talked about before I got here, and I said, of course. I think it would be a wonderful event for the state, for all those involved in hockey at any level in Connecticut, to be able to have a tournament where four Division One teams could play for a championship. Uh, I'm glad it's getting off the ground now and, and looking forward to seeing how it's uh, attended and, and, and the type of buzz it creates within the community. Well, there's definitely a hockey base still in Connecticut from the days of the Whalers uh, in Hartford. You've been drawn very well. It's a lot of fun going to the games. Uh, how does that uh, set up, you think, for the interest down in Bridgeport, which is a great arena to watch hockey in? It is a great arena to watch hockey in. I don't know how it's going to be attended in Bridgeport. You know, I was hoping at some point that it would probably rotate between Bridgeport and Hartford. I think UConn's going to draw wherever we go. I will not be surprised if there's seven, 8,000 fans there. I think the youth component with the tournament for the, the 12 and unders and the clinics probably is a good draw for the kids to go see the, the college kids play. 
Oh, no question about it. And if all those kids are coming to the games, and that's really the whole point of it, we want to be able to, and I think I'm speaking for all four schools, to be able to keep the best talent in this state. And there's been a lot of great talent in this state over the years here at home in Connecticut. We don't want people to have to drive by our schools to go to another school. You're not going to be able to keep everybody, but if we could keep the majority of the kids in state, it's better for all of us. One way to do that would be to have this tournament year in, year out. Uh, you know, when an eight-year-old is going for, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, he's been going and growing up going to this tournament. Naturally, they're going to want to play in the tournament. So when it comes time to go through the recruiting process, that's certainly going to be something that we could use to attract kids to come to our school. The televising of the games is a key always, and the move to Hockey East certainly has helped that because on any given week, there's a good chance that the UConn game will be one of the ones that will be on. Getting the TV viewers is really also another key thing. No question. And we're on again this Saturday versus Northeastern. So I think that's one of the things that's really evolved in college hockey is that more and more games are being put on television and more stations are picking up the games. And you're seeing even with the capabilities that we have streaming games, it's also you're getting a very good picture. I think the viewing of college hockey is only going to evolve and get better as time goes on. The move to Hockey East certainly was a huge leap from uh, the days of the Atlantic League and and the previous club history of hockey. And it seems that the the margins get closer because in just looking at the the way that the team has been able to be competitive and perform in the league, when you've got right now, I believe it's five members of the league or in the top 20 nationally, it's a tough league to play in. It's a really tough league. One of the tough things about here at UConn and why I'm so proud of our kids and how competitive we are. The two things that you really need to have uh, when you're starting a program are top-notch facilities and tradition. And, and, you know, when I went to Boston College, they had six straight losing seasons. However, they had a top-notch facility and they had tradition from years past where they had won national tournaments or they had won Hockey East championships. So you could draw back on that and recruit kids to that. Whereas here, the, the, pro, the program was in its infancy when I, when I took over. It was our first year, our inaugural year. So we didn't really have any tradition in Hockey East, and our facilities have to improve. If we're going to attract the type of kid that wants to play in Hockey East, and I was so proud of that first class that we recruited to play in Hockey East because every year they were here, they got better and improved in the standings every single year. And culminating with their senior year, we finished fifth in the league and got a first-round bye and and lost to BU uh, in overtime to go to the Garden. So uh, there was a lot of progress there. And then last year, we had to turn over 12 kids, and we had 12 freshmen. And uh, we've had some ups and downs this year, but it's still, I believe, the program's on the rise. I look at the numbers because when you look at sports, you look at stats. The the numbers are, 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 are are competitive in there. I mean, the, the number of, of ties, which in hockey, there are ties, that, that's a goal. You see it's on the, on, the, on the edge of making that leap. And kids have been going into the NH, NHL, which is right. always a good measure. But also, this is a regional sport. There's just looking at the, the, the teams in the league, historic rivalries that UConn has had with Boston College, Mass, UMass, Providence, and, and Northeastern. So that, that's good for the game, too. It's great. I mean, to be this is a as, as you alluded to earlier. It's if it's not the best league in the country, it's 
in the it's in the conversation. So uh, night in and night out, you're playing a top notch foe. Uh, since we've been in the league, we've had three Hobie Baker Award winners, uh, maybe four. Uh, since I've been here at Connecticut. And that's four in the last six years. Which is so, the top player. Top in the, player in the, country. in the country. So, as I said, a very, very competitive league. Uh, and, you know, our first couple of years here, we had some nights where it was 9-1 or 10-2. to two, And those days, thank goodness, are, are, are behind us. You can always have a game where you don't have a, a good night. But it was continually towards the end of that first season where we really weren't in games. Uh, we were just hanging on to survive. But... You know, now it's it's a competitive game every night. Who are the players you're relying on this year? Because as you said, you had you had a young team last year. So the, as they always as you always say in sports, the best thing about freshmen is to become sophomores right. and they have a little bit more experience. You know, we're getting some pretty good senior leadership. Wyatt Newpower and Ben Freeman are our co-captains, and uh, they've done a great job leading the way. And Sasha Piasov has, has really metamorphosed into a top-end goal scorer for us. Justin Howell is playing a really significant role on our team as well, winning face-offs and sometimes being matched up against the other team's top line. So we're getting great senior leadership. We have a small junior class with Adam Karashek, uh, Zach Robbins, and Brian Regali playing the majority of the games. Uh, and then we have a big, big sophomore class. Th- that's the class that needs to continue to grow, continually get better for us uh, for us for our team to get better they they have to grow as a group and they have done that people forget a little bit that it was only 6 7 years ago that two of these teams played for the national championship yeah they did you know Yale and Quinnipiac played in let me see uh 13 yeah that was the year they played for the national championship Quinnipiac was only 20 probably 20 years old if that they they were a club team for a long time now they've built a really strong program. It's going to be fun. I think it's fantastic. You know, we're in the embryonic stages of this tournament, but I, I want to grow it to where it's something special every year. Now, folks may remember that it was about seven years ago that Quinnipiac and Yale played for the NCAA Ice Hockey Championship. Hmm. So Connecticut's pretty good in hockey at the collegiate level. Uh Quinnipiac and Yale both play in the ECAC, uh, Sacred Hearts in the Atlantic League, which we used to be in. And, of course, UConn moved to Hockey East, which is the big league for hockey in the United States and where a lot of tough games come up. And Coach Kavanaugh is working to get us up the ladder. And we've already been doing very well in in attendance. There's a lot of so much fun to go to. I went a couple weeks ago. And I, I might say uh, Webster Bank Arena is a really good place to watch a hockey game. I've been there for Sound Tiger games and when UConn has played down there. So it's a, it's a good place to go. I think they're probably going to sell it out. So if you want to get tickets, you better get going. Get in on that. Very interesting stuff for hockey fans. So uh, I'm going to apologize here. I, I just got back from Japan, and so I don't have a Brag. Tom's History Corner. But we do have some history, courtesy of Mike Enright, our colleague. So this is more of a Mike Enright's History Corner. <laughs> Mike went down to Ridgefield, Connecticut, which you should just plug into impact.ucon.edu and see UConn's see our impact contributions to Ridgefield. Uh, he went down to Ridgefield, Connecticut, because there's a really interesting project happening there involving some UConn folks. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people know there were some major Revolutionary War battles fought in the state of Connecticut. One of the most important was the Battle of Ridgefield Did not know in that. April of 1777. And so recently there was some construction work happening in a home at Ridgefield that's dated from the 1790s. And they were digging in a dirt floor, and they found human bones. No way! So uh, this is an interesting thing that you may not know. 
whenever uh, human skeletal remains are found, state medical examiners called in to determine if they are recent. And then, or from 1777. Right. If they are recent, then the police are called in and it becomes uh, an investigation. But if they're not, I believe it's if they're older than 50 years, then the state archaeologist is called in. And the state archaeologist, by law, always has to be a UConn faculty member. The current interim state archaeologist is Nick Bellantoni. Ooh, our buddy. Who, who is, we've uh, interviewed. Who we've interviewed and who is uh, um, an emeritus professor at UConn. as an amazing, fun guy to talk to. Really amazing career. Nick was called in and he brought along two doctoral candidates in the Department of Anthropology at UConn, Megan Willison and Elick Weitzel. And Elick, if I mispronounce your name, I apologize. I'm still jet lagged. So they were part of a team along with other people who excavated the remains. And uh, they found a total of four bodies and... These were all, they all appear to be uh, healthy young men, and they found some uh, buttons, like from clothing, which may be uniform buttons. So they believe these may have been soldiers who died in the battle. Wow. Which would be the first time that the uh, remains of uh, soldiers killed in the Revolutionary War were found in Connecticut. So there's a lot more work to be done to determine, you know, if they were actually soldiers in the battle. And uh, if they, it turns out they were, then uh, they'll be reburied with military honors. They'll be reburied uh, either way. Uh, there's a whenever human remains are found, there's always sort of a respectful process of reburial. Nick is a, an expert at this, having done it many times. Mm-hmm. Do we know, based on the articles of clothing, if they were colonial soldiers or British soldiers? That's something else we're going to try to find out to, to determine whether they were revolutionary uh, patriots or British soldiers. Uh, and if they were British soldiers, then the British government will be involved in the reburial. That's fascinating. Very interesting stuff. So the Battle of Ridgefield, a little trivia for you. The commander of the American, the Patriots, the Battle of Ridgefield, who, who distinguished himself by his bravery, was shot off his horse and ordered to surrender and uh, refused, shot the person who told him to surrender and escaped, <laughs> was Benedict Arnold, uh, Norwich, Connecticut's own Benedict Arnold, who later uh, was also involved in the second major battle in the revolution, the uh, Battle of Groton Heights, except in that one, he was the leader of the British forces. Yeah, traitor. Yeah. But anyway, it's a really interesting story. Go to today.ucon.edu to find much more in-depth. That's and great. there's some video that uh, Mike Enright took. Very interesting stuff. And if you get to Ridgefield, by the way, the Keeler Tavern Museum, there's still a British cannonball lodged in one <laughs> of the corner posts from the Battle of Ridgefield. So very cool. History comes alive. Absolutely. Yukon is in it. Yep. Yes. Anything interesting happens in the state, Yukon's involved in some way. Uh, anything interesting. Anything. Literally anything. Like this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The only interesting podcast that comes out of Connecticut. I would agree with that. Obviously. Okay. So that was uh, that was the story of the Ridgefield skeletons. If this sounds like a, an abrupt transition, that's because it is. For some reason, the conclusion of our podcast was cut off. It just didn't get recorded. Speculation in the press is blaming Russian hackers. I can't comment on that. I don't know one way or the other. I will say that it was it was easily the greatest three minutes of audio we've ever recorded, and now it's lost forever. But thank you for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Yukon Podcast. You can follow Maxine on Twitter at Maxine Filivong, Julie at Julie Bartuka, me at TJ Breen, and Ken, as always, is uh, at today.yukon.edu, where you can find out the see some of the great stuff he's writing. Thanks again for listening, and see you tonight. night.